these giants who are all writing and doing impressive and important things in this year, along as, at the same time, of course, and often quite unaware of what's going on in America because news takes three months to cross the Atlantic. So they don't know, they're not responding to those developments as such often. Uh, some of them are, but many of them are not. So it's a really great way of telling a story about how modernity came to be and why the Christian West, uh, post-Christian West is like it is, and then how the church can respond to it. So that, that's why that year, it's just a great year for an intense you know, take on the story of how we got as we are. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. 1776. It's a year that is almost sacred to Americans. It's, it's a date that's seared into your mind in our songs. We learned it in elementary school. We are taught this date really because it is considered to be the beginning of this American experiment. And if you are outside of the boundaries of the United States, you may be familiar with the date as well because it's been taught in your history books. I mean, we're talking about the date of the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, and really the birth of a nation. These are just some of the things that I think about when I think about the year 1776. But recently, I came upon a book that really made me think about the year 1776 in a much larger way. And it was a book by a man named Andrew Wilson, and he entitled the book Remaking the World. I'm never, ever going to be able to look at the world in quite the same way after reading this book. It took me into a world that I thought I knew, but actually just blew me out of the water. So I decided to have a conversation with Andrew about really what has become a fascinating book, a book that you're going to see has a lot to say to us today in the 21st century, because it gives a lot to help us understand how the world that we live in right now has actually been formed by those thinkers from long ago. So it is a book or rather, a year, 1776, that largely forms the world we live in, simply put. And for me, I personally like talking to historians because I believe that you really can't understand the world you live in without understanding where you came from. I know, for some, history is a snooze fest, but this is not that at all. It actually will fully color your world so that you can see it, you can feel it, and it's not just dry history. Because if we, the people of God, are going to have any impact on our world today, and if we truly want to bring the light of Christ's kingdom to the people around us, we need to know how they think. We need to understand what they think. We need to understand the framework in which they are thinking in. And this book helps us with that. Now, here's the funny thing. Andrew's British. And he's a historian, and he's a good thinker, and he's also a pastor on top of it all. So this book, entitled Remaking the World is about how we got where we are. And its subtitle further elucidates it for us. It's how 1776 created the post-Christian West. Now, for many of my listeners out there, especially if you are an American, you might feel like this is an attack on who you are. Because it's easy for us to get our, our dander up, to think, oh, that's ridiculous. You're just a British guy who is still mad about losing the Revolutionary War. 
I understand, but that's not the case with this book at all. This book opened my eyes to a lot of things, and I found the conversation at once enlightening and extremely hopeful, and I hope you will too. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Andrew Wilson. Happy listening. Andrew Wilson, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thank you very much for having me, Travis Fleming. Very nice to be with you. <laughs> I don't think I've had anybody actually say my There's name. Just something delightfully emphatic about an invitation <laughs> like that. I thought I've got to rise to it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is going to be fun. I can tell. <laughs> Are you ready for the Fast Five? Yes. Okay, here we go. You interact with Americans quite a bit, but the thing that you don't get about Americans is what? Why they are so prone to arrest me. What? I've, I've, been in trouble, I've been in trouble with the law three times in my life, and all three of them have been in America, and I've spent about 12 to 14 weeks in America in my, nah, maybe a little more, maybe about four or five months out of my 45 years, and all three times have been in America. So and you've my, been arrested three times? I've been arrested. I haven't been arrested, but I've been I've been stopped by the police. I've been our car was flagged down. I was told to leave Harlem because I was overdressed. I've been stopped on the open road driving at 30 miles an hour in the countryside in Maryland. And I was there were some people at actually your local airport where you came from in Chicago got very angry with me uh, for not having filled out a green card to say my nine-month-old was not involved in the Holocaust. And those kinds of things are always what Baffle, baffle me about American bureau. I imagine the same is true when people are in for America arrive in Britain, but I never experienced that. So. <laughs> okay, well, how about this one then? The thing Americans don't get about Brits is what? Cricket. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> that is true. I still don't get cricket, but I'd love to learn. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that, like, game. is it the is it the second most popular sport on the planet, or first? Do you know what? That's I would and must be football must be more popular, but because be. cricket's so big in India and the subcontinent, it, I imagine cricket might be second. I, I don't actually know, but football will be more. Yeah, but, I would think so, but I, I still got to figure out cricket. Okay, how about this one? Since you are a historian, if you could interview anyone from history outside of the biblical timeline, who would it be and why? It's just a boring answer as an English guy, but probably Churchill. I, ju I just find him Churchill or Martin Luther. Both actually for the same kind of reason, because I think they're very Im impressively courageous and prickly, but brilliant yeah. people who are also very funny. Um, and I think it would be a really interesting. I think they're both the kind of guys you'd want to have a beer with that, that kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually would love to see them meet each other historically. <laughs> now that would have been a really funny conversation. Yeah, <laughs> All right, here we go. Number four, the one habit that I have that annoys my wife and kids is what? Uh, I embarrass them. I'm a very, I'm quite a loud person and I'm quite, uh, yeah, they're all four of them. My wife and my three kids, my daughter wouldn't articulate that way, but certainly the boys and Rachel would say, yes, I'm embarrassing. You have to elaborate on that. Cause I don't think that's an I, annoying habit at all. I think that's well, a wonderful okay. The annoying habit is stubbing <laughs> my toe. I think they would say, I stub my toe a lot and I stop drop and roll lots of noise, lots of fanfare. Um, and they would all find that excruciating in different ways. <laughs> all right. Number five, if I could be any British dish and like try to show that to the world to explain who I am, what would that be and why? As in food, you mean? Yeah. The food. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I think <laughs> it's an Indian dish. I, I, I think, I think a lamb madras 
or mm. a chicken tikka masala, but but probably a curry. Like I just I think this, I think people their stereotype of what pe- English people eat and what a lot of English people actually eat now as a result of you know we have just Indian and this is also by the way something that I don't I don't understand about America just the the lack of Indian food in America mm. or just the it's, it's just of course in Britain we've got lots of people from India Pakistan Bangladesh who live here. Um, and the food is just amazing. Whereas you guys do Mexican instead. I suppose that's the that's the equivalent. That's true. That it's a, it all depends on where you live, I suppose. But we don't have as large as an Indian population as you do. Although we have a very large Indian population. I mean, we we do. It's it's one of the fastest growing groups. They are the highest income earning ethnic group in the right. United States. Okay. We've actually done an episode on that on the Indian diaspora. Interestingly enough, so that's kind of fun. Okay, that's why we talk about that anyway. We talk. We we have the full thing here. We have everything. This is the one stop shop for theology and ministry. But let's. Speaking of that, that's what your book is. By the way, it is remaking the world. How seventeen seventy six created the post Christian West. I mean, what in the world? Like I saw this and I went, Oh no! Is this a man who is mad about that little skirmish between our nations? And he had to put seventeen seventy six is bad. Because most Americans go, 1776, I mean, this is, you are questioning something for an American that seems to be very, very, I mean, sacrosanct. You don't question that. And yet, you have laid that out, not just in America, of course, but across Europe, to say that really is a pivotal moment, a pivotal year that that has, I mean, ramifications until now. Why 1776? I know this is huge because I've read your book. But yeah, there's so many so, different pieces in it. But what made so you think the, 1776? Well, so the the reason is because um, there are a bunch of huge factors, forces, transformations which have made modernity or made the world of the what I call the post-Christian West. And they examples like the the Enlightenment or industrial industrialization, economic growth, democratic government kind of post-Christian vision of morality, ethics, and metaphysics, globalization, and romanticism. And, and they're, they're the sort of seven different developments that I would highlight and say these these seven forces basically have made the kind of world we are. And, and so even the changes we've seen in the last seven to 10 years, which have made people go, what on earth's going on here, are products of those different forces. And that's one, that's effectively half of what I'm trying to do with the book is to say that's the world we're in. And the other half is to say the story as to why we're like that can be told, in a, I hope, in a really nice, fun, compelling way through this story of this one year, because it, 1776 is not just, in fact, I don't think most of the book is not about America at all. Right. Um, so if you said to an American, of course, they would all say, well, this is the, the specific, the Revolutionary War and the Declaration of Independence. But if you looked at what was going on in in Europe, in France, or in Italy, or in Germany, or in England, or Scotland, or and actually even I've got a chapter in the book that's mainly set in the South Pacific, mm-hmm. um, and what's going on elsewhere in India, what's going on elsewhere in the world, you'd say that the economic and philosophical and artistic, even musical, the transformations taking place in and through Romanticism, and certainly if you go to a French cafe or a German theatre or an English factory or a Scottish pub you'd find these enormously important developments taking place through names that might well be familiar to American, let's you know, Voltaire or Diderot or Casanova or Rousseau or David Hume or Immanuel Kant or Edward Gibbon. So people, these giants who are all writing and doing impressive and important things in this year, along the, at the same time, of course, and often quite unaware of what's going on in America because news takes three months to cross the Atlantic. So they don't know, they're not responding to those developments as such often. They're 
Uh, some of them are, but many of them are not. So it's a really great way of telling a story about how modernity came to be and why the Christian West, uh, post-Christian West is like it is, and then how the church can respond to it. So that that's why that year, it's just a great year for an intense, you know, take on the story of how we got as we are. I was amazed at how many different regions that you you hit, even when you started off with maps and you started going around the world saying, basically, it's not that one group was smarter than the other. You talk about resources mm. and how each one of those is was growing. Yeah. I was amazed at just the whole breadth of the book and the width and breadth. You had so many different resources. You had so many different pieces of history you were playing. I mean, you're, you're right. It, I mean, the American part, I, I laughed in jest just because 1776 yeah. is such a, a big deal for us. I mean, and you do reference Payne and, and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton, and but they are themselves products of the Enlightenment itself the, yeah. in this whole period. Yeah. I mean, Thomas Paine's obviously British. I mean, he, he comes oh, from a few miles from my house. Like he, he he's the, there's pubs in, you know, in this, if you ever go to the town of Lewis, it's a few miles from where I'm sitting now in Sussex and you know, the rights of man, pub and Tom Paine, this and that. I mean, and, and so they are connected. And obviously what's happening in America is partly a you know product of developments that are taking place in, in Europe intellectually and politically uh, for obvious reasons. And there is a feedback loop as well. So some of the stuff that's going on in Romanticism, uh, the or proto-Romanticism, really, the, the play Strom und Drang, which is, sets up Romanticism in many ways and that movement around Goethe, but the play is set in the American Revolutionary War. So... There is a there's a fusion. There's a sort of two way exchange. Franklin rocks up in Paris at the end of the year and is connected with a lot of the characters and such. And so it's I don't want to imply they're operating completely distinctly from each other. But yeah, the the world's a big place and it's it's not anything like as connected as it is now. So you can tell a really interesting story about the development of the modern world through looking at what's happening in Indian cloth in 1776 or what's happening in German theatre or what's happening whatever. So. That's a and there's lots of parts of the world. I, I'd love to have gone more into Russia because it's a fascinating period in the development of the Russian state. But the, you just have to put a lid on it eventually. And I concluded that I couldn't fit that in. But yeah, it's a really I just think it's a fascinating year that opens up all kinds of interesting dimensions to the way we became like we are. What was incredible to me was the amount of characters that you brought in that were known, and then you evaluated by bringing in their bios. And really, I you would think that these were just on the dustbin of history, but no, these are very living characters that you find that they're not so far removed from where we're at now, where we're talking about the Marquis de Sade, where you're talking about Casanova, their love lives, yeah. the scandals that were involved. This wasn't anything new. But what I really appreciated is when you, you talk about it being a weirder, like this is how we got weirder. And I love the fact that you use that acronym. I'd seen the weird. I, I remember talking with Glenn Scrivener about this. He was talking uh, about yeah. how, Glenn was just awesome. But when I saw, I went, okay, weird. And then you put weirder. And I went, wait a minute. So define that for us, what you mean by weirder, this acronym and what it stands for. You've already alluded to it, but go ahead. Yeah. And so, uh, so, again. so weird I've got from Joseph Henrich and, and then Jonathan Haidt is where I first encountered it, um, which stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, to which I've added ex-Christian and romantic, because those are more ideological um, moral, ethical components of that. They're sort of more to do with the realm of ideas rather than the realm of institutions and material factors, which is what Haidt and Henrich and others are talking about. And so, yeah, I use that as a, a, as a seven-letter acronym to summarize those seven developments I think I mentioned earlier. So we've seen Western educated, as you said, industrialized. We, we understand the, the, the democratic. I mean, but what got me, though, was the ex-Christian part. 
that mm-hmm. one I wasn't anticipating to see within this book because at that time I would think I mean you've you've proven the other otherwise but I would think that there was a lot of Christians that were there at that time and there it was a huge movement of faith across the board and it was I mean we know about the Wesleys and the Whitfields and that kind of thing but what made you go hey ex Christian this actually it's been mm-hmm. set up to be ex Christian all the way back in the 1700s to now I mean wh- wh- what really yeah. brought that to the surface. I, that's interesting. That might be the idea that has got the deepest roots for me. I haven't been asked that before. I think that it came originally from reading a book by Alastair McGrath about 20 years ago called The Twilight of Atheism, in which, which had nothing to do with my research. I wasn't researching this, but I didn't even, haven't even thought about this book for a long time after that. But he wrote basically a book saying that the, the French, the late 18th century and the French Revolution in particular marked the high noon of modern atheism. And what we're now seeing is the twilight. And, and I think you could engage with that and push back in various ways. But it was a fascinating case from obviously a brilliant intellectual historian and theologian who ma- made the case, effectively introduced me to, I'd not really read much of the the French, you know, particularly in France, the French atheists uh, and at the time and, and the people who were both the sort of anti-Christian brigades like Voltaire, who's not an atheist at all. Voltaire thinks we should believe it. He famously said, if God didn't exist, we'd have to invent him. So he doesn't, he's not an atheist at all, but he doesn't, he really hates the Catholic Church. Um, and is trying to destroy it. And then you have, but then you have proper, more like what we would call thoroughgoing atheists. We have people like Saad, as we you mentioned, um, people like Diderot, Baron Dolbach, and and then people who are who don't quite say I'm an atheist, but they're making very anti-critical of Christianity arguments, people like David Hume, and actually in their own ways. Tom Paine and Jefferson and others. Um, and they're all around at this point. And it, this is probably the most intellectually stimulated. If you, you know, if you were wanted to be an atheist at any period in history and or wanted to be somebody who was opposing Christianity and say, when were we on, when did it feel like we were sweeping all before us? You'd probably pick maybe 1770s or probably even more 1780s or early 1790s before the terror kicked in and everything unspooled in France. And so I, that's probably what, maybe the idea I had earliest. I think I was, if you'd asked me 10 years ago before working on this, where do you think the world's move towards a post-Christian way of thinking was most, took its biggest steps forward, I'd probably say towards the later period of the European Enlightenment in around the 1770s and 80s. Um, and I still think that. Now, obviously, I then told the, tell the story by bringing, trying to bring in the, the French side, which is very significant. You know, the three in some ways, the three most important figures there are the ones I mentioned, Saad, Voltaire, and Diderot in different ways. But I also tell the American story through that edit to the Declaration. And, and not just that edit. That edit's more a parable, really, than a, than a kind of argument for why it happened. But you, you do have a very significant development in America, even that it sits in between the First and Second Great Awakenings. But you also have quite a strong, you know, not that Christian impetus to mm-hmm. a whole bunch of things in American life as well. And... And then I'll even get on to Tocqueville towards the end. So this is just a fascinating, Tocqueville is really surprised. It's like these people are very Christian and very, what I would call pagan. They've got a very pagan flavor to the things that they pursue. So, And he's trying to make sense of it. He can't quite work out how America is so Christian and yet so obsessed with this worldly material prosperity at the same time, which of course is something that as a non-American is still very striking mm-hmm. about America now. The religiosity mingled with the sort of very material you know, looking for present prosperity and experience and the pursuit of happiness. And that I think for many people in the world, America is very unusual in that way. And so I think there is a bit of that on your side of the Atlantic as well, but more of it is driven by what's happening intellectually in Europe and particularly in France. 
And you called it the what Protestant paganism? Isn't that yeah. the terminology that you use? And, and yeah. I went, oh, that'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you, I, like, who knows? I, I like that because I that's really me trying to do an intellectual genealogy of modern post-Christianity to try and to try really to try and synthesize the there's a Catholic account, which I think has got a lot of truth to it, but is overstretched, certainly are very overstated in some settings which is that really the reason you have modern secularism is because of Protestantism and the divisions in Christendom it brought about. But then there's another telling of the story, which is actually this is there's a low-level paganism that to some degree has always been here that rose up again in the Enlightenment. And I think both of those stories have a lot of merit, And I, but I think it's actually the synthesis of the two, the, the sort of almost like a, like a reaction between two elements that come together and then are catalyzed by industrialization and enrichment in particular. That caused this to the way that, but of course, that that idea, that Protestant paganism, doesn't trickle down into the experience of many in the West until midway through the 20th century. For many, that's where post-Christianity begins. I mean, and in your country, really, a lot of that is really kicking in in the last 10 years or so. Like, it's yeah. fascinating that what's happened in it's taken 80 years in Europe, it's taken eight years in America. Um, but even in the 90s, you would look at America and say, "Wow, this is incredibly religious compared to all other countries that are." as wealthy as the, as North America, which had lots of people writing books as to why. But I think in the end that 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 those two forces, Protestantism and paganism, have collided and generated what we see. But it just is a it takes the ripples take a long time to permeate through the whole of society. When you mentioned that it took 80 years in the UK and it took eight years here and and it's very religious. I know that our audience is is probably trying to keep up right now with what we're talking about here because we're going fast i mean this is stuff where as someone said i believe it's called the curse of knowledge you know everything about it you think everybody else does too i know i do i do oh, all my the time. apologies if that's no, happened I'm no, sorry. no 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 there's nothing to be apologetic about it's just i get caught because i want to talk about this stuff this stuff is so amazing to me when you get into the intellectual history of anything but I do know sometimes we have to be able to anchor this for our people to be them to understand or just grab a hold of because it is so fast and, and not everyone's thinking about this all the time. But when you're talking about that and you mentioned how it's caught up, what do you mean by that? It's caught up or it took eight years in America and we're seeing that now. We're seeing this post-Christianity take effect now or the materialism and people, the, the, the real values of what they believe where they're pulling away from church and they still have this kind of laissez-faire belief, even though it has no really major effect on their life and their real kind of Newbigin's term, gods and goddesses would be the materialism of the age. Is that what you would say? Or is there something else in there? Um, yeah, I think I think I I would. I think I, it's a slightly flippant way of saying something that's much more complicated of than course, that. Yes, obviously I've written a book about it. And so there's a, trying to, you're right, trying to summarize that quickly as often you can just jump over a lot of things. But I think what I mean by the 80 and 8 is that the, a lot of my American friends in place, when I go, you know, I'm going in a couple of days' time, I'll be heading to the States and talking about some of these things. And I find that a lot of people are saying that this is, it feels to a lot of Americans as if this has come out of nowhere. That the, yes. And by yes. which I mean a combination of people leaving the church, but also, and often primarily, that the, the initial, the canary in the coal mine was the beginnings of quite seismic cultural and moral changes in the nation, which seem to a lot of people, particularly in certain parts of America, and it's probably less true if you live in New York or San Francisco, which are more like Europe in that sense. But to a lot of the states, it feels like, oh, wow, this is almost coming out of nowhere, like the very, very sudden um, movement from, uh, you know, what I believed was quite respectable 20 years ago, and now it is absolutely beyond the pale, like that kind of change. Whereas in Britain and most of Europe, 
that not all of Europe, but that process has just taken a lot longer, both in terms of de-churching, de um, which a couple of friends of mine have, have written a book about recently, just in the American context, and yeah. just and you might have seen it. Um, but Graham, also right? in yeah. terms of the marginalization of what people, certainly a lot of, if I just sort of say middle-of-the-road white evangelicals, I think if you're in the black church, you probably don't see it this way at all. You say, no, then many of these developments have been helpful in lots of ways. There's other developments been much more positive. Mm -hmm. But in the white church, people go, this was what I believed was fine 20 years ago. Now it's not. Um, whereas in Europe, that's just taken 80 years because it really kicked in at the, you know, towards the end of, we had a, a sort of a spike of religiosity just after World War II. Um, but really from the sort of late 50s, early 60s, the influence of Christianity in the culture has been quite a gradual decline. You know, John Robinson wrote Honest to God in sort of whatever that was, late, late 50s, maybe early 1960, 1962, that kind of thing. And it's really been sort of on the way since since then, and and, and accompanied with social, sexual, um, mores, check transforming. And so actually in Britain, it probably doesn't feel so disorienting for people because it's been a much slower burn. Whereas mm -hmm. I think in America, America was much more religious than Britain or felt like it was in 1998, and now feels like it's almost less so in much of the nation than, than Britain. And that change has is obviously taken a lot of people by surprise because of the speed. Um, but I, I think in the end, it is the same trans, transition taking place, mm. sadly. Um, and I think there's something for each of us to learn from the other about how that works. Yeah. What What do you think, as you go through this intellectual history and its development, one of the things that I encounter all the time is, okay, so what? You've shown us this. What do we do with it? Now that we know this development, and it to me, you have to understand how something develops before you can help orchestrate any type of, you need to understand how people think before you can try to change their mind and influence them and help them to see Christ. And being a pastor and a historian, which is a very unique combination, sometimes those two don't lend itself to one another. I mean, we hope we can have research and we have time and we're trying to be dads and we're trying to lead a church and we're trying to do research. What has the book done for you in your, in researching the book and helping you communicate to your people how to follow Christ in this moment in time? Yeah, so that that's a really good question. And I to be honest, what it for me, it's it's almost the the, the process has been the the other way around. That the book has grown mm -hmm. out of trying to help think through apologetics and how to reach people in in London and how to help the church live in a very secular city which has then percolated into uh, ideas about how I might write and equip people uh, in, a, in a book form. So it's not so much I'd researched the book and then thought, how does this affect preaching? But rather the other way around, like I'm having to preach on this stuff all the time and think through trends in culture and then go, oh, this is actually a, might be a helpful way of expressing this for others. But there's, a, there's obviously a, a correspondence between the two. Um, I think my church in particular, and, and it's perhaps hinted at by something I said a moment ago about the black church in America. My church, I, I'm a pastor in a black majority church in South London, where the history of the, the history of Christianity in the West has a very different tenor and flavor and resonances to many of the people in our church than it would to many white people listening to it. Certainly white people in North America for whom the great America has, as I said, has been, was much more religious more recently. So the combination of the, the pace of secularization uh, in the two nations and the specific experience of most people in my church, to be honest, has meant that the, the way of telling that history has obviously been quite shaped by, and I've been very informed by, trying to tell the story of the West in a way that both honours some really good things and obviously calls out some really bad things, which of course, we're always trying to do, 
because you want to have an appropriate level of humility and yet celebration and gratitude. But I think that what that's meant is that history has become more important to me, partly by being a pastor in a black majority church, because the the I can't take for granted that my way of just assume we all have a functioning history of the recent West mm-hmm. is just that we may not critique critique it very much or think it through someone else's eyes very much. And I haven't had that luxury because of the ministry context I'm in. So I'm regularly thinking, wow, I've actually got not two stories to integrate here, but three. I've got the way that me as a sort of white evangelical boy brought up on, isn't it wonderful what Wilberforce did and what Wesley did kind of story, mingled with a secular story, which is Christianity's bigoted and repressive, but mingled with a black Christian story and a more, or, or many other people from other parts of the world in the, in the former British empire, whose story would be a very nuanced combination of both of those. They said, well, we're grateful for this, but this was really bad. And it, so probably integrating those three stories has both shaped and been shaped by the projects I've worked on. And I suspect had I not had that experience in pastoral ministry, I might not have wanted to write a history book. So, but I haven't actually thought that until we're having this conversation, because I don't think I'd realize the connection in the way I'm expressing it now. But I think that's probably where the motive comes from. Well, I think, I mean, you and I both pastored churches where there was a, a, a large group of different ethnicities than ourselves. You said black majority mm-hmm. for yourself. I know I had just a myriad of different nations in 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 two of my ministries. And I remember Newbegin talking about one of the essential ingredients for a missionary encounter is the non-Western church speaking to the Western church, because those global voices perspective enables us to see it through different lenses than we can see in our own. I mean, you've, you've already alluded to the fact that you've seen through their eyes that the history had some good and some bad. We often think, like you said before, it's good, or even going back in time, oh, the good old days. Well, if you were African-American or you were a woman, <laughs> you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. it, it wasn't always a good history. So there have been great advances, but yet within implicit within Western civilization, while we are beneficiaries of it, are some um, huge negatives, if you've alluded to. What have those done to act as blind spots for the reality and the validity of the gospel in our moment. What well, are the things that the things the church got wrong make it much harder for people to believe the gospel now? Oh, yeah, we lost a credibility problem. Yeah, an authority yeah. problem. Yes. So, um, I mean, the there are some very obvious ones in you know you don't you wouldn't need me and I'm not, and don't worry, an English guy's not going to give you a lecture about slavery or anything like that. And, and but that obviously is a big factor in 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 Britain and and. Even a lot of the colonial legacy that didn't necessarily involve enslavement and a lot, which I talk about in the book, that actually even when it looked ostensibly like we were sort of trading or whatever, you know, we, we set up under the auspices of saying we're just trading, but actually it's very, very exploitative. Um, you know, we only, I remember seeing people crying about giving Hong Kong back to China in 1997. And obviously that's been very complex and a lot of people from Hong Kong come into my nation in the last two years as a result of what's happened there. But that, of course, has a, a history going back to the 1840s of British gunships just sailing up and saying, right, okay, we're going to force you to trade with us and we're going to take this stuff in. So lots of that stuff around the world. But in our own nation, I think it compromised our, um, you know, much of the church's moral authority I don't think it's, it's, it's. I don't think that the church is uniquely responsible for those things at all. In fact, often, the to the extent that there was anybody critiquing and objecting to what the empire was doing in my country, that was coming from a section of the evangelical church. So it was it was robust critique, and of course, increasingly as the as the time went on, from people formerly enslaved people who were critiquing. So that a lot of that that you know, 
I talk a lot in the book about Olayuda Equiano, who's an absolute mm-hmm. hero, and but and obviously and white believers as well. You know, they, so there's lots of that coming from the Christians. So I don't blame the church for all of the sins of empire, and I don't blame empire for all the problems the world faces today. But clearly, that has created a, a significant credibility problem for the church now. Even even sometimes in areas where it didn't create the same problem 150 years ago, which is strange, but that's how these things have played out historically. And I think it's I think it's just to expose the reality that well, I quote as many people do, Upton Sinclair, it's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon him not understanding it. And that's not only true of people who who are not believers, it's true of Christians as well. I think the church did a huge amount of good. In the, in the period I'm writing about, and still does, of course. That's why I'm a pastor. Um, but I think you, you just have to own the, these are the ways in which it was very ambiguous and complex, and particularly when the church or individuals in the church have nearly untrammeled power, the level of trust you can place on individuals to do the godly thing diminishes the extent to which those accountability structures are removed. And I think that's what we are seeing now in a lot of what's shaking through the church in abusive leadership. It's what we saw in the 1840s or the 1770s or whatever, many, many other periods. Um, and so I think it's not to say, oh, no, the church is just is no better than anyone else. I think it's just to say, no, the church, individuals who follow Jesus still need the same protections from their own sin and accountability structures um, to prevent them from exploiting other people. And that's not something you're immune to just because you are a Christian. And I think that's a... a yeah, as I say, we're seeing that in our own day just as well. And so for me, one of the benefits of a book like this is to say, wow, people who love the Lord and are brilliant on this issue have massive blind spots here. And of course, we still do. And I think, sadly, we're, we're seeing much of the impact of that in our own day. We are seeing the impact of that in our day. I know I had, um, uh, as a guest not too long ago, Russell Moore, a theologian in America, writing about the losing our religion. And we talked about, we have a credibility crisis. We have, I mean, there's so many different areas that he named and that's true. I mean, we, we can see this across the board. We can see where the culture's at. We can see the arguments. We experience the conversations, the lack of trust, the labels. I was surprised at how much of that was also going on in the 1700s. That was a shock to me. I, I thought it was more of a recent development and it wasn't. There were people at the time, as you said before, that were standing up against slavery, that were standing in, and against hypocrisy, that were, were going through all these different pieces, and that were, even in the colonialization aspect, were appalled at some of the exploitation that was going on, as you alluded yeah. to missionaries and priests calling for that. I do know in talking to a lot of different people, as we're assessing where the modern era is right now, some are saying, okay, I, I got it. We've got all these historical issues. We've got systemic issues that have gone on. But where is their hope? Where where can we see the church doing good? And you said, I, I wouldn't be a pastor if we weren't doing good. Where do you see the hope now? As we've identified some of these issues historically, we can't change the past. So how do we go about living in the present? And where do you see hope now where people are actually doing good in a way to build credibility as a bridge for the gospel? So I think I go... You know that you know that the beautiful one of the songs of ascent has this lovely line where it says, you know, I don't want to concern myself, our oh Lord, with things that are too wonderful for me. I've just quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. And I think sometimes when you when you see, we all pride ourselves on seeing the big picture. And obviously, this is silly coming from me because I've written a book with a very very big picture, <laughs> the world in the last two hundred. <laughs> but, um, but actually, I think that what because you're drawing with such broad brushstrokes and you are aware of such 
titanically significant individuals for good and evil and both, it can be quite easy, I think, to lose just what's happening in your street or your home or your church. And I think when I look for hope, I actually, that's where I go. So I don't disregard the big things. I don't regard, oh, no. so I've, I've there's a lot, you know, I'm a, probably, I'm, yeah, mid forties, have been in some sort of Christian ministry for nearly 20 years. And therefore I've now got contemporaries of mine and people who I know quite well who have gone into ministry, led well, and then done something stupid or mm-hmm. maybe even worse, evil, and therefore been either removed or fallen or whatever. And so when I look at that landscape, I think, oh, gosh, what's going on? It's just dropping like flies. And then I look at my church, or even better, a small group, like not even the whole church. Our church is 1,500 people. But you got to, okay, so if I was to, if instead of zooming into you right now, I was zooming into a small group happening in my church tonight, there's a bunch of, you know, I might say, oh, there's a few older older women who are meeting up, or there's just a bunch of our, um, you know, people who are working in the ministry to the poor area who are just meeting up to have a small group or there's a bunch of the kids workers getting together or just a random selection of people in our church and was to just listen in and and hear what they were talking about and hit, listen to them, pray with them and listen to their priorities and their hopes and the way that they are looking for God to help them as they raise their kids or go to work or, you know, just deal with difficult, you know, a, a difficult boss is giving them a hard time and they're not quite sure how, what's a godly way of responding to it or advocate for justice in this area or serve the poor. And you think that's where I get hope. So I, it's when I sort of go very small. It's a mm. bit like when, um, you know, those tweets every now and then someone says something silly about pro-lifers and goes, oh, pro-lifers just care about the issue, but why don't they just adopt some kids? And then there's this whole mass hundreds and hundreds of responses <laughs> underneath going, well, I do this. And 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 you, I've seen a number of those do the rounds. There's another one a few weeks ago. And just the thousands upon thousands of Christian families who are going, yeah, I'm I'm looking after a special needs child or I'm adopting this order. That's how I am doing. I'm so on. And see, the kingdom is like yeast. It's hidden mm-hmm. in a loaf. Most people don't see it. Very, very gradually. So I think hope comes there as I look small. And God has chosen the weak things in the world to shame the strong. And I think sometimes when you look, spend too much on our celebrity-inclined culture, our mass media culture, the speed of social media, all those things, draw our eyes to the new and impressive and dramatic. And then we're like, oh, man, all my hopes were pinned on this guy, or it's often he's a guy, it's often might be a woman, being the new big thing. A friend of mine rang me yesterday. Uh, this is, I don't know whether this is okay, I'm just kind of share. I'm an external processor. It might be stupid. But he rang me yesterday and he'd seen the article written about me and Rachel and the Gospel Coalition. He knew I'm going to this event next week to preach there. And he just, he's a, a, he's a fellow pastor, but we've been friends for 20 years. And he just rang me up and he said, I just want to give you a warning. I just don't don't believe the PR. Like, and he, he actually, I mean, this would be facetious, but you, you would hear it, I think, in the spirit he meant it. Americans love a celebrity. Just don't be that guy. You just don't, mm. mustn't believe it. And it was so good. And it was very warm and not intense and heavy, but, and he loves me and I, I, love, I love him. But it, it's, it's that. It's like this, you've got to keep things small and, and not. Now, that doesn't mean I need a large church and I want my book to be read by lots of people and I'm happy to speak at big conferences. I'm not, I don't despise those things either, but I think when I look at the big, I go, oh, there's so much scope for disappointment. And when I look very small, what's happening in your street or your home or your meal table or your small group, then there's a lot of reasons to see, wow, look what God's doing with people you've never heard of. That's an encouraging word, especially in our moment right now. I think you're right. Americans, especially, do do Brits not love the celebrity as much? And this is this is why I said, hear it in the spirits. And I think we do too. I don't think we're any better than anyone else. But I do think that probably the the celebrity culture in the church is a much bigger risk in America. 
In Britain, the only reason we don't have a celebrity guy, not because we're more humble than anyone, it's just because there's not enough Christians or money to make it feel like a celebrity. You know what I mean? It, it's that rather than that we're somehow more pious. I don't think we are. What do you think culturally, as you said, you're leading a church, which you said 1,500 people. That's quite large. I don't lead the, the church, no. And this is one of the reasons I have time to write a book like this. I'm I'm called the teaching pastor, but the senior pastor is, is a friend of mine. We we have a, a big staff team. And so I, I do more preaching, but I don't lead the church. But I mean, even then, writing, a, helping to, to, to be on the leadership team, to develop sermons and write a book. I mean, how long did it take you to write this book? Well, so three years from the start of the project to publishing it two years of pretty intense work, but then it would have taken longer, but it was, that was the only benefit. I hated lockdown. I'm not a fan of lockdowns at all. Mm. We, they were pretty long in Britain, but that was probably the, for me, the silver lining was that I think lots of things I would otherwise have had to do. I just couldn't. And I, I, a lot of the time I couldn't even leave, barely leave my house. I was sitting in the room I'm sitting in now with surrounded by books that are all around me as I'm speaking. And, uh, and I did, there are lots of the ministry things I would like to do, including driving up, to, to London or whatever, I just couldn't do. So um, so probably, yeah, two years, but I think it would have been three or four years if it hadn't been for lockdown. What's been the response of the book so far? Yeah, I've been really encouraged. I mean, this has only been out, I don't know, what is it, officially two weeks, I think. I'm very encouraged. I think probably the I've written enough books to know that the initial responses you get are often the positive ones because people who are very enthusiastic about the book and are likely to like it have often ordered it online before they've heard about it. They want to talk about it and then they buy it and quickly read it and say, I love this book. So it doesn't, that's not necessarily representative of everything, but I have been really encouraged, particularly in the States. Um, I think that the, the sales will be dramatically more in the, in the States than they are in Britain. I don't know what they're well end up, but also I think the, the feedback, I think the, the kind of questions you're asking are reflective of a, they demonstrate, I think the extent to which that the things I'm talking about are hopefully answers to questions that Americans are asking more than they are to think questions British people are asking, which is partly to do with the history of the year, but it's partly also to do with the discussion we had earlier about the, the, the pace of change. Um, and, the, and I think that probably the appreciation of and the need for integrated history in the American setting. So um, I think it's in Britain, I think plenty of people have gone, I'm really glad it's come out. I've heard good things about it. I haven't got around to it. Whereas in America, I think there's more of a this is one of the, there's lots of others, but this is one of those books I'm hoping is going to really help me make sense of our cultural moment. And I'm really grateful for the response we've, that it, it has had and really stimulating discussions like this make me feel like, okay, this is, I think there is a place for this. It's got, it's found a, it's found a voice in, in, in the market out there, but yeah, we will see. It's probably much too soon to say. Well, I was chatting with Mark Knoll and we were just talking about books on the horizon and he made sure to highlight your book. So there you, that's- uh, He was very kind about it. And that, that was a massive uh, encouragement because uh, obviously I have, a, I have a huge respect for him. But um, yeah, it, I think we, we will see, but it's, um, I'd love it to spark some discussions and some debates, which I, perhaps I can't even foresee what they would be, um, but have people to help people think. And I also want it to be really fun to read, um, which I, because I just think it's a good story. I think it's just the kind of thing that even if you weren't particularly going to take application, you might go, that was really interesting to hear about those things because these characters are fascinating and what they did really matters. Well, how you brought out different stories. I mean, even as you talked about the Endeavor and uniting that to the the space shuttle or how you bring out different people with even Mary Shelley and talking about the original title of her book. And then, I mean, yeah. you have this way of bringing out the punchline. And I started figuring that out as I went, I'm like, okay, he's <laughs> going to introduce something here. Here's the punchline. I'm like, okay, who is this? And 
you you but you brought life to a lot of different characters that I hadn't I I, I would have considered not a, I mean not together I mean they were really yeah. disparate across the board but you brought them together in ways that it was a cohesive whole to see how this mentality wasn't just with one person there's several different people that are yeah. doing different events at the same time that have all trickled down to this current moment and it's causing us to go wait a minute how do we refigure this how do we notice this because I know when we talk to people and our, our focus is on helping people with their missionary encounter with Western culture, they want to say, well, what's bad? Western culture has done all these good things. And it has. There's great advances medically, technologically, oh, educationally. Yeah. All of those things are wonderful, wonderful things. But one of the things that we've noticed, and I was, I've was i talked to this to several people, is when we talk about going on mission or we go to a mission trip, let's say, we'll talk all the time about going to Haiti or Guatemala or Uganda, places that are predominantly Christian. But we don't go to Japan, which is, you know, predominantly not one of the most unreached countries in the world. It's because we don't know what to do. Yeah. We don't know what to bring because we've so equated modernity and the or the Western culture really with Christianity that we don't know how to separate them. We don't yeah, know how to make it understandable. And it's, yeah. it, it is making it very, very difficult, but it's good to untangle this. And it makes me stop and go, as you're interacting with people from the non-Western world, that have living now in the Western culture and maybe for a couple of generations, just with the rising, you know, the British empire and it's, it's the sun never sets on it, of course. And I remember hearing uh, Ray Bakke, who was an urban missiologist years ago, and he was talking about how many different people from the British empire were moving back into London. And he said, not too many of the white Londoners. This is, as he was writing, this is in the late nineties. He said, don't like that. And he goes, well, I call this, I call this the empire strikes back syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you're seeing just a shift culturally across the board. It's not just happening in the UK. We're seeing with the world refugee crisis, we're seeing more people move. God is doing something that's absolutely incredible, but still in the backdrop and everyone wants in many respects is the Western cultural ideal. They want that prosperous life. They want that comfortability, but with that comes its own form of idolatry. And how do we root that out when it's part and parcel of every single one of us? And how does the, the Christian message really take root and can we separate them? Those are the questions. And you've mm -hmm. you've brought a lot of those to the surface and contributed your voice to the conversation to help us to be able to untangle many of these oh, different things. And it, yeah, that, been thoroughly that, that, I think that that's the the hope is that by you, you, I, I'm not I'm sort of hammering a oh gosh everything that my ancestors did is terrible. I'm, I'm I, that's not my disposition at all. I'm an optimistic person, but I'm also but I, I think it's also very important to, be, to tell history humbly. And there is definitely a very simplistic triumphalist reading of it, just as there is an apocalyptically gloom mongery kind of reading as well. And I think by telling a, a hopefully a, a rounded and integrated story from lots of different angles, you can say even even industrialization, you can say really good here and here, so mm -hmm. really bad here, here and here. We, weighing up the pros and cons is just we can't extricate ourselves from it. I don't think we could go back even if we wanted to, but I, we've got to just be honest about some of those tensions. The same is true of the amount of wealth we have now. The same is true of Europe, the history of European thought or globalization, I think, has been very damaging in a lot of areas, but it's also been very made a lot of people live longer and more comfortably. In a, and it's very difficult to appraise those things in the balance. But I think by talking about what they are and not just the, the sort of pros and cons of these massive developments, but also the pros and cons, the blind spots, but also strengths of specific individuals, you can then have a sort of slightly more, you know, a humble courage. That's what I would look for, is for people to say, I can be bold because of what God has done, but I need to be humble because I know the mistakes that people have made, even when God is with them, and to try and pursue both of those threads together. And, and I think that's very important. And I, yes, if, if the book 
kind of either models that or just sort of expresses it in a way. I'd be really happy. That's what, that's what I'm hoping. It's funny, as I was chatting with Malcolm Guy uh, several months ago, we were talking about the state of Christianity in the UK. And uh, it was St. Patrick's Day when we were having this conversation. So he had a pipe in one hand and a pint in the other. And as he was talking, he made a comment. He said, well, we're going to be all right. Lord got down to 11 disciples. We'll be okay. If we yeah. get down to the 11 last Christians, God, we, we don't need to, to wring our hands. I think part of the reason is, is that there's been a loss of cultural familiarity and power within that, as well as cultural capital that has been lost, that is no longer yeah. there. And I think we have to rethink and understand what power we are looking for. What are we trying to do to communicate and transmit the gospel in an effective manner so that people might be participants and understand who Jesus is, but to see themselves within the kingdom and how to, to flourish in the middle of that. Yeah. One of the things that we like to do is we get ready to conclude our show for today. I know you have a hard stop here in a few moments, but we like to, because we are Apollos watered, you know, we want to water faith. We like to leave people with a water bottle for the week, something for them to sip on. What is one truth that we can take away from your book that our people can sip on this week? Um, that's a very good question. I hope there's a bunch, but I think the one that I, I actually kind of finished the book with, I think is the fact that a lot of the things, the, the truth is in a way that, the truth people want to believe in order to ground their confidence in human rights and human dignity and lots of really good things in this world. That truth ultimately only holds on the basis of Christianity, that, that there is something deeply good about what the Christian message brings to the world in, in terms of our understanding of who humans are and how we should treat one another. And that even people who strongly object to Christianity, require Christianity to make the critique of it that they are making. And the, the things that seem to us self-evident truths or the UN Declaration on Human Rights or, you know, we should love one another. You think that is what, in a really good way, everyone you know, almost everyone you know, I would think, believes that that is a moral absolute, loving one another, treating others as you wish to be treated yourself. You think those things, they're not just said by Jesus, although of course they are, but they are only a logical, existentially satisfying thing to believe and pursue on the basis of Christian truth. It doesn't make sense if you hold to a, an atheist, materialist, exclusively evolutionist account of the world in which we started as goo and now that we're this. And actually, there's no reason to ground. You should love one another. You should even you should include people who are not like you. You should pursue diversity. You should be kind. But all of those things that people rightly prize in our world. They're actually only things that you, the, the only moral basis, the only philosophically reasonable basis for saying you should do them is that God, we have a, a creator who loves us and he made us in his image. And he came to earth to live like us and die the death of a slave and, and, and rise again and inaugurate a new world, which is going to be better than this one. And those are the truths that you need to undergird the things that people put on their yard signs or their bumper stickers, or even that they're waving as they walk through a pride parade or put on a notice board at work or, or whatever it is that, that, that actually the undergirding convictions that provide the substance for those claims is Christian in nature. So basically people around you want to believe in Christianity. They might not want to believe in some of its claims, but the, but the, the ultimate humanism that undergirds what they believe comes as a Christian source. And that's wonderful news for those of us who are sharing the gospel in a post-Christian world. That is a wonderful concluding word. Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for writing the book. And it was thank you so really much a pleasure. For
Oh, it's so good to be with you. Thank you so much. The world certainly is getting weirder. I love that acronym, don't you? Can, can you remember it? Let's try it together. Western, what's the E? Educated, good. I is industrialized. R, rich. D is democratic. E is ex-Christian. And R is romantic. I'm so proud of you for remembering some of them. Well done. Kudos to you. I actually really enjoyed this conversation because it helps us to understand how the world that we live in has actually been formed. I was watching a video the other day by Tim Keller, and he talks about living in a person's frame, understanding how they think within their frame. Like every one of us has like a frame of reference, a frame of thinking. And rather than come from the outside and proclaim something that they don't know, that's foreign to them, they usually shut down. But if you help them to understand how they're thinking and find the holes in their thinking according to the frame they already have established, well, that makes it easier to share the gospel. That's why we brought this episode to you. We want to help you understand the frame that many people are already thinking out of. That they are Western and they don't even realize it. That they are extremely educated, even though they may not think that they are, because they're often comparing themselves to the PhDs that are out in the world. How we are industrialized, and we've been shaped by our industrialization. How we are rich, especially when you look at the rest of the world. How we are democratic and how we go about things. How we make decisions. How we look at the world. How our world is becoming increasingly ex-Christian. And it is very romantic. And when we understand this frame that people are living out of, the story that they are trying to find themselves in that gives direction to their lives, we'll be able to speak to them about Jesus clearly and truly within it. And we'll find that we have won them. This isn't an easy exercise to do. In fact, for many of us that are a part of the Western culture, we don't even realize how much it has already shaped us, but it has. And the more that I look around the world today, the more I think the challenge of sharing the gospel within this frame becomes so much more important. See, that's what God has called us to here at Apollos Watered. He wants us to help equip and encourage you in your missionary encounter with Western culture. And see, missionary encounter, that's what it actually communicates, this idea of confrontation. You need to be able to confront it with the claims of the gospel. And we're not just confronting it with the truth of who Jesus is. I mean, we do, but there are so many different assumptions that are within the culture that are actually anti-biblical that actually convey meaning apart from Christ and direct people away from Christ. And we need to help people to see that. That's what it means to have a missionary encounter with the culture. And if there's nothing that you can find to encounter, well, chances are then you've already been co-opted by the Western culture so much that you can't even see the difference. And that's why you need to stay tuned into Apollos Watered so that you can learn the difference. Because I will say this, it has shaped your church it has shaped it, and your church doesn't even realize it. How we go about it, and we think that's the right way. We don't even we don't even acknowledge or aren't even aware of these things, and that's why the church has been co-opted, why it's ineffective, and that's why so many people are dying on the vine, and pastors are burning out left and right. That's why we're coming alongside to help equip you so that together we might learn from one another 
and then be able to fulfill this mission that God has for us in the midst of this culture. Because the church is exploding in the non-Western world. But we're noticing that where the West is, these ideals where it's making it weirder, it's the most resistant to the gospel. And that's why we're here, to help equip you in your missionary encounter so that you can minister effectively where you are. I hope that this conversation was a blessing to you today, just as much as it was for me to have it. I also want to thank you for listening, and I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.